Almighty God, thank you for scripture. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you that we could hear your voice. As we look at salvation, um, as we look at faith and repentance, we pray that you would enlighten our minds, you would encourage our hearts, and you would grow our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we are going through something called, uh, in, in classic theology, called the Ordo Salutis, which is Latin. Uh, almost all theological concepts are can be expressed in the Latin, uh, which means order of salvation. And we we looked at last week, right, that uh, the doctrine of regeneration, which means that God comes into our hearts and gives us new life. He awakens us, right? He takes away a heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. And then now we're looking at faith. And I want to just underline and, and uh, uh, emphasize that regeneration leads to faith, right? That faith comes out of regeneration, right? That regeneration precedes faith. The implication of which is huge. What is the implication of that? Because regeneration is, is, is a work that God does in our hearts. That means that uh, that means that God is the is the ultimate author of our salvation, right? If God is the ultimate author of our salvation, right? Because regeneration is not something that we do to ourselves. We don't put an EKG spiritual EKG device on ourselves, right, and give ourselves life. Therefore, if regeneration precedes faith, that means therefore predestination, right? Um, that ultimately we don't we don't save ourselves or we don't decide to be saved. Uh, ultimately, it's God's choice. Right. So, any questions on that so far? So, what you're saying is basically that when it said uh, Christ died for all our sins, you know, and everyone can come, it's not true that everyone can come to get salvation unless they're called or predestined. Wait, I'm sorry. I just realized, I'm like, I'm missing two sheets. So, that means it must have been handed out. So, someone, someone who's early on has has my sheets, and if you don't have it on the back, then then you have my copies. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay if you have it. Yeah. So can you get a real handout? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right. If you can get a new handout, there's new handouts. Michelle, thank you. All right. Sorry, Warren. Ask your question again. Oh, so you talk about predestination. Right, because not everyone is saved. Not everyone can be saved. Is that true? Everyone can be saved. And God chose it that way. But not, not everyone is saved, huh? And God chose it that way. That's right. Yeah, it's God's choice. So it's not our choice. If it were our choice, then faith would precede regeneration, right? Because faith is what we do. Uh, faith is our conscious choice to accept, believe in Jesus. Uh, I, I right. That. But this happens only after this happens. Yes. And since this is entirely passive on our part, since God is the one doing this, therefore God is the first mover. I guess another way to put it is, who is the first mover? Okay, that's God is the first mover. If God is the first mover, then it's ultimately his choice. If it's his choice, predestination. Okay, so, so what you're saying is, let, let, me, let, me, let me make sure this, that everyone... Uh-huh. Is everyone predestined, or uh, I'm not sure if I'm asking the question right? It's early in the morning, so can someone help me? Is, <laughs> is everyone predestined? No. So not everyone has uh, the capability of being saved unless God wills it. Capability has nothing to do with it. If we're talking about capability, no one has the capability. Not, not our capability. Uh huh. Possibility, you're talking about po- possibility. Possibility, yes. God can possibly save all. But there, okay, there's some that's left out. Could there be some that's left out? Some that's left out? Yeah. Yes. The elect or saved. Right. The elect, yeah. Yeah, so in theological terms, this would be the reprobate. The, the reprobate are not saved. So God does not choose them. So God passes over some. So it's kind of like the Exodus story, okay, right? Okay. Yeah, there's some that God passes over. Well, that's the opposite, but anyways. Um, it's like a... Uh, th- there's some that God passes over, right? That God does not choose to save. 
And then there are some that God does choose to save, using his sovereign power to save them. Okay. Yeah. okay. okay. Um, all right, so. Thank you. So, uh, so uh, that, that was just a recap of the last two weeks. So let's go on to faith and repentance. So first, that there is, faith is necessary. The necessity of faith. You cannot be saved without faith. Uh, let's just read two passages. Galatians 3 first. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. By the way, let me just pause right there. You know, a lot of people say, well, why aren't, why does it say sons and daughters? The explanation is very simple for that. Um, in the Greco-Roman world, uh, sons had higher status than daughters, principally because they had inheritance rights. Um, a daughter could inherit, inherit uh, the name, the land, the property of her father. Only sons could. And so sons had a higher status. And therefore, Paul here is actually being very equitable. He's being, very, he's being a radical feminist when he calls daughters sons. Right? He's saying it doesn't... Because if he said, um, all you men are sons and all you, daughters, uh, all you women are daughters, then the cultural understanding at the time would be, oh, then women are second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. But the fact that he says men and women are all sons... It's a radical feminist statement because he's basically saying you're all equal co-inheritors of the kingdom, right? You're all uh, equal status to the father, uh, to, uh, uh, to each other, receiving as sons of the father. Okay, so I just want to say that. Where are you at, real quick? Uh, Galatians three twenty-six. Okay, so at the very beginning. So in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. That's so amazing, right? You, you women, you are sons of your father. Uh, you're inheritors of your, uh, you're, you're receiving an inheritance, right? And how does this happen? Through faith. Romans 10, 9. If, that's right, look at, look at what's predicated, right? Or what, what's, what's dependent. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it depends on faith, right? Faith is necessary. And then the question then, the natural question is, so then why faith? And the answer is that faith is the fitting instrument of our salvation. And here, let's do a little bit of a thought experiment, right? Could it be that God could have given us uh, salvation, that God uh, could have designed it so that we receive salvation without faith? Is that possible, theoretically? I suppose it is, right? It could be, it could have been that um, at the end of our lives, we die and then we find out, aha, I'm saved. <laughs> I fall into the eternal arms of my father, right? Without faith. It could have been so that faith is not even necessary. Or God could have said, um, you're going to receive salvation through this mechanism. Uh, when you read the Bible from cover to cover, the, the moment you finish, last chapter of Revelation, aha, you're saved, right? Or the moment you give 10% of your income to the poor, aha, you're saved. But instead, the mechanism, the means, the instrument is faith. And I want to show you here that faith is entirely the, the most beautiful and the most fitting instrument for receiving salvation. Look at Ephesians uh, chapter 2, very famous verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, right? Through meaning, th through the instrument of, right? Not as the cause of. And this is not your own doing. Notice the logic, right? Because he's comparing two things. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, right? So that no one may boast. Um, so what is faith? Faith is the opposite of good works. That's what Paul is saying. Faith is confessing, I don't have any good works. I don't have any merits to my name. You know, a lot of people uh, have this misunderstanding that faith is the one good work that you render to God, right? That God has basically lowered the scale all the way down. He's not asking for an exemplary life. He's not asking for, you know, um, that you that you give all your wealth to the poor, that you're sexually pure. He says, I'm just asking for one thing, that you have faith, right? Uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, um, the autobiography of Malcolm X. I don't know if anyone's read that. There's this famous scene where he's in prison, right? And uh, he's, 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 he's uh, talking to a fellow Muslim prisoner, and he's about to convert to Islam. And then the, uh, the, the uh, fellow prisoner says, God is so gracious. God will take 99 steps towards you, but you must take the final one step, right? You have to make the one last final move, and, that's, and, that, and then you will, you, you will be right with God. Um, that's not the Christian understanding. The Christian understanding is not that faith is the one step. Rather, faith is the empty hand, Right? 
that receives the, the free gift of salvation. Faith is what a beggar does, right? When, when there's a homeless person begging on the street and the, and the homeless person extends his empty hand, is the empty hand saying, I have wealth, right? Is the empty hand saying, I'm pretty capable. The empty hand is an admission. I have nothing. I am destitute. Can you help me? I, I would like to receive a free gift, right? So that's the posture of faith. Um, it's, it's, it's acknowledging your poverty, seeking mercy. And therefore, do you not see, therefore, that faith glorifies God as the giver, and faith rightfully humbles you as a beggar, a spiritual beggar. Uh, Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. We'll talk about justification next week. Um, but justification means that we are declared righteous by God. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So again, faith and good works or works of the law are opposite, right? They're, they're, they're set in contrast to one another. Faith is not works. So when you say, I have faith, what you're saying is, I don't have works. That's, what you're, that's, what, that's what's going on. Okay. Um, any questions on that? All right, let's move on. So then, what then is faith? And theologians have classically said that there are three components to faith. Uh, noticia, uh, which means knowledge. Again, these are in Latin, right? Um, noticia is where we get the word notice, which means knowledge or content. Assensus, which means uh, assent or consent. Agreement, basically, and a fiducia, which means trust. So let's go through them one at a time, and each one is telling us something very important about what faith is and what faith is not. So first, noticia, knowledge, right, or content. There has to be content to your faith. There has to be knowledge to your faith. It can't just be faith in faith. Um, and I think this goes very much against popular culture because popular culture says, all that matters is that you believe. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe it with all your might and all your strength, right? Um, my, my favorite example of this is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Um, if you've seen that movie, great movie, right? Um, Indiana Jones is looking for the Holy Grail, and he finally gets to it, but he has to pass three tests. The final test is something called the leap of faith, right? He, 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 he's, he's walking along this passageway, and then he sees this huge, yawning, impossible-to-jump chasm. And he will surely, if he falls into the chasm, he will surely die. So he's like, what am I going to do? This is the third test. So he gets out his old leather notebook that his father, Sean Connery, has written, right? And he reads it, and it says that, uh, what does it say? I forget. Uh, it says, basically, this is a test of faith. That, that's what I remember now. It's a test of faith. It's a leap of faith. And Indiana Jones, if you've seen the movie, uh, he's like, this is impossible. How can this be done? So he closes his eyes. He grips his heart because he has to muster faith, right? He lifts his foot dramatically, right? The music is soaring. And then he steps into the void. And then, I'm sorry to ruin the movie for you if you haven't seen it. <laughs> but uh, it's a, like one of the most dramatic moments that I've seen in movies he lands, right? He, he steps on something, and then the camera pans to the side, and you can see that what he's walking on is actually a solid stone bridge, but it's been painted to be camouflaged, so it looks like it's, there's nothing there, right? So Indiana Jones passes the third test, right? Which is the leap of faith, right? The this, this step of faith, right? He believed that there was a bridge, or he believed that he could walk across a chasm, and it happened, right? Um, that's not the Christian understanding, Um Faith does not by itself save you, right? So if you're standing on a chasm and you go like this and you, and you, and you leap into the unknown, you will die, right? Um, unless you happen to step on a camouflage bridge, obviously. Um, so faith does not, by itself does not save you. What then saves you? It's the object of your faith, right? It's who you have faith in. So here's Matthew 17. Listen to what Jesus says. For truly I say to you, very iconic statement, right? But actually quite misunderstood by a lot of people. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you, for you, right? So how should we understand this passage? And here I want you to realize that this is Jesus is evoking a paradox. Um, the paradox is this. So here, here's my 
Here's my rendition of a mountain. Here is a mustard seed, right? So Jesus, when, when Jesus says you can move a mountain, in, in, in that time period, right, it was sort of a, a, a conventional saying, and it still makes sense today, right, in our culture. To move a mountain, a mountain was the biggest object imaginable. So it's basically saying the, the, the biggest thing possible, can you move it, right? It's the most impossible, it's the greatest task possible, and then a mustard seed is the smallest seed in the Middle East. It's, it's tiny. It's, it's like a little pebble, uh, peppercorn. So he's saying, if you have faith this size, you can move a mountain this big. Right? And so what is that saying? He's saying it's a paradox. It wouldn't be a paradox if Jesus says, if you have, so- if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mustard seed. If you have the faith the size of a mountain, you can move a mountain. He doesn't say that. What does he say? If you have faith as small as a, pe- as a, as a mustard seed, meaning virtually nothing. There, but virtually not there, right? So small, you can move the largest object possible, which is a mountain. Therefore, what is he saying? If you put it together, he's saying the size of your faith doesn't matter. That's what he's saying, right? The strength, the, 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 the surety of your faith does not matter. What matters then? Whether you have faith at all, right? Whether and, and whether you have faith in Christ, right? That's why he's always saying, put your faith in me. Put your trust in me. Um, so it's not faith in faith. It's faith in Christ. And if you have just a little bit, tiny bit, almost not there, but it's still there, you will surely be saved. You will surely be able to do impossible things. He's talking about things like salvation and, and advance of the kingdom. So let me give you an illustration, right, of why it's the object of your faith that ultimately matters and not the strength of your faith, right? So imagine there are two passengers, and they're getting ready to board a plane. One passenger is a seasoned business traveler, has done this a million times before, so confidently strides onto the plane and has uh, his whole routine set out, flips open his laptop and enjoys the whole plane ride, right? The second passenger almost never flies, and is deathly afraid of flying. And, in fact, the night before his flight, he watched um, 10 World's Most Scariest Plane Crashes, right? The documentary. <laughs> and now he's, now he's going to board the plane. And he is terrified. He is throwing up every time, every, like, five minutes, right? And he's just shaking, and he, and he, and he barely gets onto the plane, right? And the whole time, he's just sweat is pouring. He's, like, gripping his seat. So here's a question for you. It's a, it's a bit of a trick question, right? Which of these two passengers gets to their destination first? They both arrive at the same time, right? It's a miracle. How is this possible? One person has a lot of faith in the plane. One person has very little faith in the plane. But they both get to the destination in identical uh, at the identical time because... It doesn't matter how strongly you believe in the plane. All that matters is that you believe in the plane enough to get on. Right? Um, it doesn't matter how strongly you believe in Jesus. All that matters is that you believe in him. No matter how weak it is. Now, does the strength or the, does, the, does, the, the, uh, does the um, confidence of your faith not matter at all? Yes, it matters. It, it's going to make your ride much different. Right? The business traveler enjoyed his ride. The, uh, the, the person who barely had faith but just enough to get on the plane had a terrible ride, right? That's the difference, okay? Um, so let me read you Mark chapter 9. This is an amazing passage. Jesus said to him, this is the father, the, uh, a father of a demon-possessed boy comes to Jesus, right? And says, can you please, uh, if you can, can you heal my son? And so Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes, right? So Jesus is saying, it depends on your faith. Um, I will save your boy. You can receive my power, in other words, but only through faith. You must have faith. That's what Jesus is saying. Immediately, the father of the child cried out. See, the father was extremely distressed by this. You mean it depends on my faith? And said, I believe, help my unbelief. So what is the father saying? The father is saying, I do believe, but help my unbelief, meaning 
my faith is shot through with doubts and and concerns and and I don't know and and oh I'm so uncertain I have weak faith I have uncertain faith I don't know I don't know I don't know and what does Jesus say does Jesus say well I can't help you <laughs> right you need to have strong faith go back and meditate on this for a while instead what does Jesus say Jesus says Jesus heals the boy right what what does that what does that mean it means it doesn't matter the strength of your faith all that matters is that you believe in Christ because Christ says all all you need to do is reach out and grab a hold of him um Romans 10:17 so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ so again faith must have content and faith has can only be a response to the word of Christ which is the gospel so any any questions on that uh, noticia very important right not faith in faith but faith in Christ faith uh, there has to be knowledge of Christ there has to be understanding of Christ and what he has done yes uh, I mean. that's so sweet because I mean just here Yes, I'm not saying, you know, be okay with weak, tiny, you know, shoddy faith. But I think it's incredibly encouraging if you have faith. Yeah. The littlest faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, God will surely rescue you. I think that's amazing. I think, you know what that means? In the end, um, so many people will be saved. You know, I think a lot of people have weak faith. So Pastor Michael, so let's let's say I have a friend who's say uh, he, he came to the Lord and his faith is not shot, but mm-hmm. he's just growing. Yeah. What should my response be if he's telling me that? Still, even though he accepted that, his uh, his belief in God is still a little shady, even though he accepted the Lord. Yeah. So we're going to get to that, right? Okay, so there's right. more. There's more to okay, faith. Yeah. Okay. So I would never say to somebody with weak faith, ah, you're saved. <laughs> I would say, I would say, be encouraged. God will surely rescue you. But now you need to grow in that faith, right? And it's not so that you can be saved. It's so that you can honor God with your faith. Because remember, faith glorifies him. And for your own happiness and well-being and flourishing, is it is it a happy place to be? Have weak faith? No, strong faith, great faith, big faith will will make you will give you deep meaning and purpose for the glory of God. Did, Thank you. Did, you, did you have a question? No, I just wanted to. Uh, with he, he kind of there, he, he was humble when he admitted he, his faith was weak. Yeah. So part of my weak faith is to humbly admit it and ask for help. Yeah, always ask for more. Ask yeah, the Lord to that's a fantastic point. Yeah, blessed are those who are poor in the spirit. A bit of a paradox, but part of having strong faith is admitting weakness. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Admit your yeah. Admit your weak paradox because part of it, my weak faith is not going to want to cry out to the Lord. Right. Right. It's going to hinder me. Actually, here's the paradox. Weak faith means that you partially think you're still strong. Yeah. Right. So strong faith is when you completely realize, I'm, I'm a mess. Yeah. Right? I think for a lot of us, our conception of, of Jesus is that we're walking along the path and sometimes we stumble. Sometimes we, we trip or sometimes we, 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 we have difficulties and then Jesus comes alongside of us and holds our hand and pats us on the back and assures us and, and lifts us up and encourages us. Um, but as you grow as a Christian, you realize that image is completely insufficient, inadequate. What you are is you're, you're, you're on the ground. You're bleeding. You, you, you're on the cusp of death, right? And then Jesus picks you up and he's carrying you, right? That, I mean, when you understand that's your relationship to Jesus, that's when you have faith, right? You have nothing, nothing to contribute. All by the grace of God, by the mercies of God, yeah. So let's, let's go on. A census, which means agreement. So what is this saying? You must agree. In other words, theological knowledge is not enough to be saved, right? Um, faith is not just a cognitive knowledge in your head, um, but it's consent, it's agreement. Um, in other words, it's not enough that you can write down on a piece of paper what is the gospel. It's not enough that you could even pass a theological exam, but you must agree. You must say, yes, this is true. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, 
you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. So what is this saying? James is saying, listen, Satan has perfect theology, right? <laughs> Satan get an, can get an A, an ace through seminary, but he remains the enemy of God. First uh, Corinthians chapter 8, uh, Paul here is talking about um, a group of believers who understood and knew correctly that, idol, that food served to idols was acceptable to eat. But what they would do is, aha, they would, they would go to Christians who had um, compunctions and scruples and felt you know, uneasy, morally uneasy about eating food sacrificed to idols. And so these strong, knowledgeable Christians would say, aha, you have problems. Um, this meat is so good and mm, so juicy, right? So this is what they would do because they, they had better theological knowledge. But what does Paul say to them? Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So he's rebu- he's re- he rebukes them. He says, basically, knowledge alone is not enough. Knowledge alone is not good. Because without love and without faith, it's, it's meaningless. So that's what a census means. Let's go to fiducia, which means trust. Um, and here... Uh, not only must you, not only must your faith have content, meaning you must you must believe in Jesus, not just anything. Um, not only must your uh, faith have correct content, but you must agree with that content. And then finally, not only must you agree with that content, but you must trust Christ. You must uh, you must real you must you must be willing to stake your life on Christ. Um, so here, let me give you an illustration of a bridge. Suppose. You and your friends um, uh, are in the woods, and uh, you, 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 go, you stumble into a cave uh, for some rest, and you discover um, a raging, angry bear. So the bear is coming after you, so you're running for your lives, and you come to the edge of this cliff, and there's a rope suspension bridge, right? And this is the only way that you're going to live. You must cross the bridge. So your friends, who are bigger and heavier than you, lumber across, right? They, they walk, they run across the bridge. Now it's your turn. Either you cross the bridge or you die. You've seen your friends much heavier, much bigger than you cross the bridge. So you know the bridge can hold your weight. You know the bridge can save your life. Um, but you're afraid because it's a rope suspension bridge, right? Um, you're afraid it won't, it won't, it, you're, you're afraid you're, you're still going to die. So faith is stepping on that bridge. That's what faith, that's what I mean by fiducia. You're you're not just saying um, uh, the object of my faith is the bridge. I know the bridge is strong enough. You must step onto it, right? You must put your whole weight on it. Faith is therefore losing your balance and putting all of your weight on Christ, right? Think about a trust exercise, you know, um, that people have for team building, right? (laughs) Where you have to just lean back and you stop supporting yourself and you completely let go, right? And you have to trust that your team-building partner is going to catch you, right? Um, that's what it means to have faith in Christ. You have to stop holding yourself up, and you have to let go and put your weight on Christ. Um, what does that mean, right? Here's what it means. It means that you stop depending on everything else um, that, has co- that has held you up for your identity, meaning, and purpose. Let me give you Psalm 52, verse 7. Um, Wade actually preached on this, I, I believe, a few weeks ago. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted, there's that word, fiducia, right? But trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. So what is David here in the psalm saying? That here is this man who would not trust God, but instead trusted his riches. What does that mean? It means that he, he, looked, he was looking for security, he was looking for meaning. He was looking for identity. He was looking for comfort. All these things, he didn't turn to God as his refuge. He turned to wealth. He rested his weight on wealth. And, and therefore, it will lead to his destruction. As Jesus says, wealth, wealth, wealth is incredibly flimsy. It's incredibly fragile. And one day, it will all burn up. Um, so either we trust God or we trust our riches. It cannot be both. Either Christ is our refuge or something else has to be our refuge. And on this theme of money, let me go on, right? This is what Jesus says as a counterexample. Mark 12, I think it's a very powerful story. It's a challenging story to me every time I read it. Mark chapter 12, And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. 
Many rich people put in large sums. Verse 42, and a poor widow came. And remember, widow, I mean, widow doesn't really resonate with us, but in the ancient world, uh, widow, immediately you know what we're talking about. Because in a male-dominated society, if you're a woman bereft of your husband, you have no means of sustenance. So you basically, you, you survive either if you have children, or if you don't have children, by begging, right? Or, or by somehow scraping a living. And a poor widow, right? so she's destitute, she has nothing, came and put in two small copper coins. Right? It's a length, lengthy translation, the Greek word there is lepta, which is basically the smallest coin possible. right? It's, it's the smallest unit of money possible. Um, you could think of it translated in our terms like penny, basically, right? Um, and 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 a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny, right? So th- they were so small, right? That that uh, I forget the Greek here, but together they combined for a very small unit of money. And he called his disciples and to him and said to them, right? He's he's commending this widow who dropped two lepta, two small copper coins, into the treasury box. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of, their, out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. I think that translation there is really powerful. It's really arresting. Verse 44, end of verse 44, Jesus says she gave all she had to live on. Uh, that translation is a little bit clunky. It's a little bit lengthy. Um, in the Greek, it literally says she gave her life, her bios. Right? She gave her life, everything. She didn't hold anything back. And I think it's significant that she gave two coins because conceivably, she could put one coin in the offering box for God and one coin she can keep for herself. Right? But instead, what did she do with her two coins? Everything that she possesses, she gave them both to God, right? And Jesus here compares it to the way the rich give. How do the rich give? How do I give? I give, the rich give, and I think I, I can probably you know, safely say, I think the way most of us give is we always give to make sure that we're still okay, right? We give out of our excess. We give out of the surplus of what we have. But we don't give to endanger ourselves, right? We always give to stay in control of our financial situation. But what does the widow do? The widow gave without demanding any control or any safety for herself. She totally surrendered herself to God. And so Jesus here gives us the widow as an example of faith. By the way, I'm not saying that you need to give away all of your wealth such that you have no savings or anything like that. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm saying this as because the Bible actually says... Um, if you don't support your elderly parents, you're worse than an unbeliever, which means that you have obligation, financial obligations. You have obligations to support your children, of course. You have obligations to not be destitute and depend on the charity of others. If, if possible, you should try to um, earn a living for yourself. But the example here is Jesus is giving us an example of, of, of what is faith commitment. Right? The widow totally let go of all the scaffolding sort of support structures and she just released and fell into the arms of God, okay? Um, any questions on that, on that point? As an example of faith. Yes, In some ways, um, her, her contribution with the two small coins, it could look like very little, and... The only way to know if there is faith combined in that action yeah. is not it's not going to be obvious to her neighbor yes. per se, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually actually he measures it by what you hold back. Okay. So when he looks at the rich, they held back the vast majority of their wealth. Whereas the widow held back nothing. So yeah, it's true. Jesus doesn't look at what you give, actually he looks at what you hold back. But also to the public or to, to other people around her, they wouldn't know. That. They wouldn't know, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm also a little hung up on the last sentence, the, the next verse. I was hoping that you could speak to that as well. Verse 45? The James 2.17. Oh, yes, I'm going to talk about that. Yes, I'm going. Very it's good. confusing to read. Yes, I will. So, so and, and, and on, the, on, the, on the question of appearance, so... You know, in the ancient, uh, in, in, at the temple, when you contribute to the treasury box, it wasn't actually a treasury box, it was a treasury, it was like a horn, 
right? It was like a big uh, open receptacle made of metal and copper or something like that. So when you drop coins, it makes a noise. So, you know, you have the wealthy, you know, and they didn't have paper. They didn't have a paper currency. Everything was in coinage, hard metal. So when the rich contribute, it's, it just sounds like a pachinko machine or something. Like ding, 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 right? It's just this amazing, sonorous. Uh, look at the, who's, who's giving this much money. When she gave, it, right? It, 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 there was no notice. She gave um, without any honor, right? Any payment. It was all for God. Jesus, Jesus looks at it. God looks at it. Um, let's go on to the next point. Because uh, uh, we're going to read James 2. True faith. Here's, my, uh, here's what I want to say. True faith will always lead to acts of faith. And that's kind of like an answer to what War, Warren's question. Um, which is, here I want to make a distinction. Remember I said that faith is not works. Right? Faith is not works. Faith is, 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 is not, is, is saying, in fact, I don't have good works. But here it is. Faith will always lead to good works. Uh, faith by itself, by itself, Without the good works, le- leading to good works, we can look back at the faith and say it's actually dead faith. It's actually false faith. It's spurious faith, right? Um, and the metaphor I would use is a tree and fruit. Um, a good tree, a tree that's alive, will always, always produce fruit. Um, but the fruit isn't what gives the tree life. What gives the tree life? Well, you know, whether it's alive, right? Right? The fruit is the evidence of life, but it doesn't cause life. Does that make sense? So good works doesn't cause you to be saved, but it's the evidence of your salvation, right? So here's what uh, James says. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And a lot of people get confused here because people are saying, well, James says there's faith, but if his faith is by itself... Well, he's using the word faith here a little bit differently than the way we've been using it. He's talking about faith, if it's by itself, is really dead faith, right? Uh, 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 inactive faith, which is no faith at all. There is no such thing as faith that doesn't lead to works. It always leads to good works, righteous living, a life that one wants to please God. And therefore, you can look at a life, and a life of uh, continual, unrepentant sin is evidence that that person really truly doesn't believe. Because if, if there was true belief, you you would exhibit a life, right? It's sort of like this, right? If you're dating somebody, or if you're married to somebody, and this person is always continually cheating on you, always unfaithful to you, um, what can you say? You would say, I don't think you love me. And they would say, oh, I do love you. I do love you, but I'm going to be unfaithful to you. No, 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 no. Those two things don't go together, Right? Faithfulness and love go together. They don't. They, you cannot separate them. So, um, any questions? Any uh, comments there? Yes, Michelle. A quick question um, about the bios, giving her whole life. Yeah. That is so beautiful. Yeah. Is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> Today? Are, For sure. Like, if anyone could, you could. For sure. Yeah. So, so, so here's the thing, right? Jesus ultimately is not talking about money. Um, the amount of money. Yeah, I'm not talking about. I yeah, get because if you look, if you look at the New Testament, there's all sorts of wealthy believers. There's Lydia, the, the dealer of purple cloth, purple cloth being a luxury dealer. So you could just think of it as Lydia, the Lexus car, you know, uh, owner, uh, the car sales uh, dealership owner, right? So here's Lydia who owns a Lexus car dealership. She believes, right? Um, so it's it's not that wealth per se keeps you from the kingdom. But that, but Jesus says, remember, right? It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right? Meaning, uh, uh, he's talking about the fact that wealthy people look to their wealth for meaning, identity, purpose, happiness. So, let's just take money out of the whole picture. Okay. <laughs> to that level of trust, yeah. like, here it is, here I am. Like, that would be amazing to that is, yeah. I, people, this, do, people are now living doing that. Yeah. Like, completely, I, I let it all go. Health, you know, I trust you. That I trust you, amazing. yeah. So I think what it is is this, right? Um, uh, we're always growing towards that. So here's another analogy that Jesus gives us. Jesus says, don't build your house on the sandy land. Build your house on the rock, right? 
Because uh, when the storms come, your house will stand. I think what happens is storms come in our lives, always. And when the storm comes, you thought your house was on the rock. But you realize your house was substantially on the sand, much more than you realize. And your house sort of semi-collapses, right? Your life is a shambles. You realize the, 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 the faith and trust that you had in Christ was much weaker than you thought. But what you do after the storm is you rebuild. You shift onto the rock. Yeah, you, 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 get, you get more on the rock. And then the storm comes. Half your house collapses and you realize, I realize I was on sand and land, right? You shift more on the Christ. So I think what happens is the purpose of storms in our lives is to take away the good things so that because they become ultimate things so that we realize Christ is the true ultimate thing that we have. Yeah. All right. That's right. Well, I mean, they are good things. We, I mean, God wants us to have health. God wants us to do, uh, to uh, be happy. God wants us to do well in our jobs. God wants us to have families. These are all good things. Um, but he does not want these good things to come at the expense of knowing the ultimate, the ultimate thing, which is Christ. All right, so not just faith, but repentance. How am I doing in time? All right. All right. I may not get through it all, but it's, it's possible. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. I really like this word. Metanoia literally means change of direction. Right? So here's repentance. You're going this, you're walking this way, you pivot, and now you're going the other direction, right? It means also change of heart, change of direction. So repentance is turning away from sin and is turning towards Christ. So let's look at First Thessalonians chapter one. You see the same pivot, this turning. You turned to God from idols, or from idols to God, to serve the living and true God. So repentance, oh, I forgot to link faith and repentance. Faith and repentance is really the same thing. They're just talking about different components, different aspects of. Right? Faith is, is, is grabbing a hold of Christ. Repentance is letting go of whatever else you were holding on to. Right? It's turning away from sin, turning towards Christ. So what do we learn from First Thessalonians, uh, where Paul is writing? Repentance is turning away from our idols and turning to God for the things, uh, 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 for, for all the things that uh, we're looking for from our idols as the true source, right? So what does that mean? I think this is very important the way Paul puts it. Notice Paul doesn't just say you need to repent of your sins. Paul doesn't just say you need to repent of your law-breaking or your disobedience, but he's asking you to look at the sin beneath the sins, there's something driving your sin. There's something driving your disobedience, right? Why, 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 why can't you obey God when it comes to uh, sexual morality? Why can't you obey God when it comes to greed and money? Uh, why can't you obey God when it comes to lying and truth-telling? Um, it's not just that you're breaking these rules, but there's a reason behind it, and the reason behind it is you're looking to something else. There's something else going on in your life that's giving you meaning and purpose, and that's the alternate God. That's the God substitute in your life. That's your idol. And so what Paul is saying is that repentance is, is turning away from those idols, smashing the idols, right? Every time Israel in the Old Testament repented and turned to the Lord, they would take their idols. See, I feel like in some ways, they are spiritually healthier than us, right? They actually had statues. Like whatever they were worshiping, they, they were self, spiritually self-conscious enough to set up a statue of it and say, this is Aphrodite, the goddess of love and romance. And so what they would do is they would smash it, right? They would destroy it. They would stop bowing down and worshiping it. That's repentance. Um, so what does that look like? What does smashing your idols, destroying your idols look like? Acts 2, this is uh, Pentecost. Um, now they, now when they, this is the crowd when they hear Peter's speech, right? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So what does repentance look like? It, me, it looks like conviction of sin, right? You you, 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 it's like you behold your sins for the first time and you, you realize the horror of them, the evil of them, the vileness of them, and you feel deep remorse. You feel deep sorrow. 
right? And that is repentance. And so repentance is grief about sin. It's hatred of sin. And here's an important point, not just grief about the consequences of sin. Um, the Bible makes a distinction between those two. Look, listen to what Paul has to say in Second uh, Corinthians. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, right? So he's not saying grief by itself is not sufficient, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So he distinguishes worldly grief and godly grief. Because uh, repentance, true biblical repentance, is not just a feeling of sorrow. If you feel bad after something terrible, you've done something terrible, that's not necessarily true repentance because worldly grief is where you're, you're sad about the consequences. You're sad that you were caught. right? You're, you're sad that you've had bad repercussions. But godly grief is sorrow about the relationship that you've... That, um, the broken relationship that you have with God. And, and it's, it's horror about the sin itself. So that even if there were no consequences, it doesn't matter. The consequences are, are fitting. And they are there to help remind you of why it's evil. But the consequences are, in, are inconsequential. What really wounds you, what really cuts you to the heart, is what you did to God. Right? The, your betrayal to God. Um, last uh, two more points. Uh, we repent not only of the evil things we, that we do, but we repent of the good things that we do. This is very paradoxical for a lot of people. Um, but Pharisees and religious people repent of their sins, but Christians repent of their righteousness. Christians repent of using good things as a means of self-salvation. So look, listen to what Hebrews 6.1 says. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So notice what the writer says, right? Repentance from dead works. So we repent not only of breaking the law, but we repent of doing good works as, uh, as a means of feeling good about ourselves, right? As a means of uh, feeling like we have a good standing with God, um, uh, I think I think this is where the penny drops for a lot of Christians, right? This is where you feel deep repentance. Um, I remember I became a Christian when I was in junior high, right? And um, in junior high, uh, I, I had grown up in the church all my life. And uh, I heard sort of the variations of the gospel message my entire life. But for some reason, one day I heard the pastor preaching, and he defined sin in a way that I'd never heard in my life before. He says, sin is not just doing evil things or breaking God's law. Sin is doing things for yourself, out of selfishness, out of selfish desire, and not for the glory of God. And I don't know what it is. When he said that, he said it much more eloquently than I just explained it. But when he said it, it just slammed me. It destroyed me. Because all my life, I was a good kid. Um, I was one of those kids in uh, church where I would raise my hand. I was like, I don't know, the Sunday school teacher's favorite pupil, right? I knew all the answers. I was like, ooh, ooh, pick me, teacher. Uh, I remember we used to have an annual Bible test um, in which you would get a prize and glory. And, 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 and every year, I won it. Like, by... It wasn't even a contest. <laughs> one one year, I felt like it was like some ringer from some from out of nowhere. This kid beat me. I was so angry for a year. I just held this, just this, this burning passionate desire. So I studied up, and the next year I bested him, right? And and I reclaimed my title. And then I realized when the pastor was saying, sin isn't just breaking, isn't just breaking God's law and doing evil things. Sin is 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 living for yourself living for, um, uh, doing things out of selfish reasons, I realized, I looked at my life, everything I did was for me. It wasn't for the glory of God. It was for me. All the good things that I did was really for, so that I could look good, so that I could, have, um, I could have high status. And so we repent not just of the good things we repent, uh, not just of the evil things. If you really understand repentance, you, re you repent of the good things. And then you're just destroyed. There's nothing. You're a spiritual baker. Finally, last point. Faith and repentance is a lifelong discipline. 
we're going to read uh, a portion of uh, Jesus's, um, the Lord's Prayer. Notice in, pr- in his prayer, we don't stop repenting. Listen to what Matthew 6 says. Give us this day our daily bread. So notice it's a daily, you know, rhythmic thing. Give us this day our daily bread. And, okay, which means whatever happens next follows the same daily rhythmic of asking for bread. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So what Jesus is teaching us is that we never stop repenting. You repent every day, all the time. A religious person is traumatized by repenting. Because when a religious person, a religious person thinks of himself as a good, as a, a fundamentally a good person. And so when a religious person is confronted or sees his sins, he's traumatized by it. It's, it's, it's very, it's, it's, um, it destroys his self-image. So it's traumatic and he, and it's rare and it's painful. But a Christian sees his sin and is not traumatized by it because a Christian knows he is worse than he even imagines. He is worse than he will ever truly know. And every time he sees more of his sins, it doesn't traumatize him. It fills him with joy. It fills him with sorrow for the sin, but it fills him with deep joy and deep gratitude knowing that God's salvation is all the greater. God's mercies are all the greater. And so a Christian joyfully repents all the time, a lifetime of repentance. Um, Repentance is renewal, it's healing. Repentance is life. You never graduate from repentance. You do it all the time. Um, any questions or any comments? Really quick. So Jesus didn't repent because he was perfect. He was God. So there was no, he was done. That was. That's right, yeah. A lot of people uh, have questions. Like, why was Jesus baptized then, right? Because isn't baptism a symbol or sign of repentance, which it is, because you're washing away your sins, right? Um, and the answer there is Jesus stands in our place. So Jesus, we we need to be washed of our sins. So Jesus stands in our place. He is baptized, which means now um, all of his righteousness is transferred to us. All of our sins are transferred to him. And then what happens at the end of his baptism? The skies open up. The Father looks down. The Father says, this is my son. I'm so pleased with him. And therefore, what is the implication? He's saying it to us, right? This is my son. Remember, son is an honorific title for both men and women. This is my child. I'm so proud of you. You're the, you're the apple of my eye. You delight me. So, so that's what's happening. Any other questions? All right. Let us pray. <laughs> Almighty God, thank you so much for this um, glorious doctrine uh, that we are saved through faith through repentance. And we are like the Father who cries out, we believe, but help our unbelief. Our faith is so weak. We still cling to our idols. We still cling to our sins. We, we, we believe the lie that our sins will make us happy. They'll fulfill us and satisfy us, but cause us to see that it's death <laughs> Cause us to see that it's life is obedience. And so help us to turn to the source of life. Help us to fall into your arms. Help us to run into your arms. And we pray that you'll be honored and glorified with our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.